Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Andy McPhail followed in the footsteps of his Hall of Fame father and grandfather, embarking on a baseball career in 1976. Following stops with the Cubs and Astros, McPhail became the youngest general manager in the game when he joined the Twins in the mid-80s, guiding Minnesota to a pair of World Series titles. He would later move back to Chicago, becoming the president and CEO of the Cubs, then later joined the Orioles as president of baseball operations, making many of the moves that would turn Baltimore's fortunes around. These days, McPhail is in Philadelphia as the Phillies team president, trying to help that club return to the World Series for the first time in nearly a decade. I recently sat down with McPhail in his office at Citizens Bank Park for a wide-ranging discussion about everything from his biggest regret in the game to Steve Bartman to the impact analytics have had on the sport. Here with Phillies president Andy McPhail. Andy, thanks for taking some time. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Mark. Uh, You graduated from Dickinson College in 1976 with a degree in American Studies. During your time there, you played for the school's Division III baseball team as an outfielder. Coming from the family that you came from, was baseball always your your biggest passion? Not necessarily. I think, frankly, I took the path of least resistance. It had been, uh, you know, I would represent the third generation of my family that would get involved with baseball. And all that happened when my grandfather went bankrupt in Columbus, Ohio, right at the Depression. And the Columbus Indians asked him to run that franchise. And the next thing you know, now we have four generations of of McPhail's in baseball. Uh, I had been schooled by my older brother, Al, that if I had any interest at all in going to baseball, you had to do it first. You couldn't go into business and then make the change. So I sent my resume out to, at that time, 24 clubs and, uh, you know, would would learn a little bit about nepotism, that it's a double-edged sword because I was hired by the Montreal Expos. I was told what my title would be and what my job would be. And circumstances evolved where I ended up getting fired from my first job before I ever showed up. Uh, My father was the American League president at the time, and the leagues had a lot of authority and autonomy. Uh, and the American League was being sued by the Seattle, the city of Seattle and Cook County or King County, whatever it is. And it was ultimately the American League's decision that they would expand into Seattle to get rid of the lawsuit. And then uh, they had to find a companion team to, to go with it, to keep it an even number. They chose Toronto, which infuriated the owner of the the Expos at the time, uh, Charles Bronfman, I think it was, and, you know, my offer of a job got rescinded before I ever showed up, which was a shame because I took French in college and I could have used it there. <laughs> so I'm, I'm out of a job, and I can remember standing in the athletic department of Western Maryland, uh, which is now not no longer Western Maryland, and was trying to... Uh, contact the Cubs who'd offered me what essentially was an internship to be their business manager in Bradenton, Florida at Pirate City and you know ultimately accepted that uh, and that's how it, it got started but I you know as much as the nepotism can help sometimes I learned right off the bat that that uh, it can go the other way on you too. Your grandfather Larry Hall of Fame executive uh, his time running the Dodgers there are some legendary stories uh, but his impact on the game was was pretty broad. He arranged the first night games, had the first team travel by airplane, uh, was instrumental in getting games put on the radio, among many other things. How much of an influence was he on you? 
Uh, not that much, actually, because, you know, by the time I got to know him, he was sort of in his latter years. I don't know that he was quite, you know, as sharp as he was, when, obviously, in his younger days. Uh, I've come over time to uh, really respect what he accomplished. Uh, I think the best quote that described him is that he was a genius when sober and brilliant with one drink and a raving lunatic after two and too often <laughs> had more than two. So, But but he did other things, too. He, he invented the batting helmet when uh, one of his players got hit by a pitch in the head. He, he you know, in, had uh, organ music played in stadiums. And the other thing about my grandfather... He was only in baseball for about 10 seasons, and he made a huge impact. You know, the, as you said, the first night game, radioing your home games was absolute heresy when you had two other teams in New York. He really was a visionary, but he had two other careers. He had a significant military career. He was a captain in World War I with an artillery uh, brigade, and after the war, he and four others went to try to kidnap the Kaiser. Uh, and you know, almost got himself in trouble with that. Came, well, left the Dodgers to go went during World War II to go back and and go rejoin the military, which he thought was everybody's responsibility. And had a big job, you know, had a big job with a general that was in charge of procurement for the army. Um, so, and then after his baseball career, he was thoroughbred. He raised thoroughbred horses and he raised cattle. So, he was. When he had first gone bankrupt in Columbus, he was a Big Ten referee. He really led a tremendous, uh, exciting, varied life. Uh, he made a fortune, would lose a fortune, make a fortune, lose a fortune. Unfortunately, you know, he ended up on the losing the fortune side when he invested in a phosphorescent paint uh, and ended up losing it all. But, but you, you talk about a, a life fully lived. That was my grandfather. So I think it's had an impact on my my approach of things or my outlook, but but it wasn't so much a one-on-one -on -one thing. I would assume that your father's impact on your baseball career much greater. Uh, no question. And my father was the antithesis of my grandfather. He was a quiet consensus builder. He was thoughtful. Uh, he was he had none of the sort of <laughs> you know the uh, bombastic tendencies that my grandfather had. He, he was, uh, but again, very influential in his own way, culminating in the Hall of Fame. Mentioning Hall of Fame, both your grandfather and your father are in the Hall of Fame, the only father-son uh, combination there. What was it like for you, 20 years apart, to see them inducted into Cooperstown? Well, I, obviously, we were really moved when my dad got in, which was which was something. And, it, you know, at that stage of his life, it was such a... Uh, huge benefit to him. It's a validation of, of your career being impactful, but it also gave him activities to go to, an identity as he got into his 80s and 90s, which, which was extraordinarily important. So it was a gift and, uh, you know, something we're grateful for. But, we're, but I, and I, was, I was happy that somebody who uh, was kind of a low-key consensus builder, I, I was very grateful that that type of, of contribution was recognized to the extent that you get into the highest honor that our sport can give. You mentioned that first job with the Cubs, uh, business manager working in Florida. Uh, you would move through the organization. You became an assistant in the Parks Operations Department, became assistant director of player development. What were those early years of getting into the game with the Cubs like for you? Well, I can assure you that starting as the business manager of the Bradenton Cubs in Pirate City is the lowest rung of the ladder. <laughs> that, uh, so I, and it was just a summer job. And at the end, they told me they could offer me a position in the ticket office, uh, you know, and I politely declined saying that if, if I wanted to do sort of the business, I'd do business. And I, but I, so I was looking for a, more of a baseball op thing. And they, and they made me a full-time offer with the idea that eventually I would morph from park operations into scouting and player development, which is what, what they did. Uh, it, it was an education. Uh, I mean, it really was an education. They didn't know what to do with me in January of my first year. They owned the Midland Cubs, which was a team in the Texas League. So they sent me down there to assist Bill Rigney Jr. on selling advertising space and season tickets and I learned that wasn't for me. That was a rough, that was a rough go, but 
but a good experience nonetheless. So uh, sometimes learning what's not for you is just as important, right? Absolutely. So you leave Chicago, 1981. You move on to Houston uh, to serve as the assistant director of scouting. Become their assistant GM uh, shortly after that. You were there for three years. What what stands out most from your your three years with the Astros? Well, everybody ought to have a boss like Al Rosen. You know, every once in your career, everybody ought to have someone that is truly looking after your uh, interest. You know, I was essentially remember no computers. I was the one, the assistant GM, that was responsible for understanding the rules, knowing how many options were left, when you needed waivers, when you didn't need waivers, and it was all done by hand. You know, you kept everything in a in a notebook. So. I would travel with the team everywhere because I became the indispensable man to the degree that it was just about, can I make this assignment? I want to option this player to AAA, can I do it? They would always ask me. They, and, but it would have been easy for Al Rosen just to say, hey, kid, you know, just keep the rules and sit over here. But he took an active interest in assuring that that I understood what they were going to what the thought process was behind the moves they were making whether it was trades or free agent signings or you know moves within your organization uh, you know they they really did a nice job he and Bob Kennedy of preparing me for what ultimately become a, another assignment in Minnesota when you know when they didn't have to more importantly than that even uh, since I was traveling, every, I was with every, every home game or every road game. Uh, you don't have much of a social life when you're a young man at that stage. And I was dating a flight attendant from United Airlines at the time, and Al and Rita Rosen could not have been more gracious about making sure she felt welcome and was part of it. And I ended up marrying her, and we've been married for 32 years. So he took an active interest in, in your career and your life, which I'm always grateful for. Just a logistical question about something you just said. You said, you know, there were no computers back then. You had to do everything by hand. So when you're keeping track of player options, you're keeping track of moves around the league, how, how does that happen? How do you make sure you know every move that's happened around the league when do you have to call the league office and just get a daily report of things that have been called in? Or how, how difficult was it to make sure you were on top of everything? At they that had things like telex, if you remember telex. And, and uh, so they had ways of communicating with you on a regular basis, not nearly as efficient as they are today. But, but, you, cert but you were aware of signings. You were aware of arbitration results. You were aware of options going back and forth. It just wasn't nearly as seamless as it is today. As a GM, I would imagine the advent of call waiting was probably a, a big, uh, a well, big thing. We went, yeah, I mean, when we started, you were chained to your desk when you were an assistant GM or a GM. You were afraid to leave your phone uh, because if you had, as a GM, if you had made a trade proposal to a club or you had, you you were trying to do something, and you were waiting for their response, you you couldn't leave your office. Busy signals had to be frustrating as well. What other team is on the phone with them right now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you became the Twins general manager at the age of 32, youngest GM in history at the time. Did you feel you were ready for that job at 32? No, no way. And remember, back in November of 86, the median age for GM was 53, uh, not 33, and or at 32, actually, at that time. And, you know, I was the youngest GM, not by months, but by almost, you know, I think by at least a decade. You know, there was nobody within 10 years of me. What Carl Polad was thinking about, I will never know, because I never run a department. Uh, but my, my quick ascendancy, you know, in my career path, I attribute to really 1976 and a new collective bargaining agreement uh, based on the Messerschmitt ruling that you now had free agency. Uh, salary arbitration came as a, as a result of the collective bargaining agreement. Agents were now on the scene. You had a generation of baseball executives that, while they under, you know, might have been former players, understood the game on the field, they really, in some cases, didn't have the academic background to deal with what, what a new set of rules, regulations, and a more aggressive negotiation on the players' behalf than what they'd been accustomed to. Uh, so I think there was a void, and I just I came out, graduated in 76, so the timing could not have been better for me. I don't think it was a, a function of anything other than really good timing. And having an academic and a baseball background by virtue of my family that where I could sort of fit into both worlds. 
Carpole had said when he hired you that he wanted, quote, a new, fresh, young look, somebody who wouldn't get caught up in old thinking. Did you feel at the time that you took a more modern approach? Oh, yeah. I mean, your peers who, like you said, were 10, 20, 30 years older than you? Yeah, I I think we did. I mean, I don't think, I don't know that we were reinventing the wheel, but we were, you know, we have, and these were a lot of people that we hired. Terry Ryan was my first hire. Uh, Pretty good one. Yeah, (laughs) it's hard to get better than that on the first shot. But, you know, we were trying to look at everything. Uh, We actually had something called Media Analyst, which I think about it today. It's it's the old version of MLB Trade Rumors. We, We would find people that we knew that lived all around the country. We would send them Twins gear, and in exchange, they would send us clippings from the local newspaper. They weren't supposed to be about the game. They were supposed to be insights into their thinking. So we wanted to know what our competitors were thinking. We were, we developed a grading system. We developed, you know, we were obviously keen on stats. You know, there were some acquisitions we made that were just purely stat-based, but they weren't nearly as sophisticated as they are today. But, and, and it wasn't necessarily that we were pre-analytics. It was that we were anxious to learn as much in sort of that whole circle as we possibly could. Any character information we could get, any, you know, any information, or is a team under financial pressure, or is, do they have a good second baseman coming up in the system where this guy now becomes, you know, not as important to him? We, we tried to collect everything from everywhere, and that was, but obviously we weren't doing it nearly to the degree that we do it today. Go back to Minnesota. When you take over as the GM, the Twins are three years removed from a 102 loss season, hadn't been in the playoffs in 15 years. What were the biggest challenges in, in taking that GM job in Minnesota? Well, I didn't know how good we were. I mean, I, we, we, and I give Tom Kelly a lot of credit here, we valued two things. And again, things that, that get away from us even today. We value defense, partly because of the fast surface we were playing on in the Metrodome, which was as hard as this table. Uh, and, we va- and we augmented the bullpen. Uh, and we took a team that was 20 games under 500. We made a managerial change uh, on, that was more reflective of the character of our team. You know, we, we, we hired Tom Kelly, who had been with these guys as they had progressed through the, ma- uh, the minor leagues to the major leagues. Uh, and then, and while we only won like 87 games, we'd, we'd lost our last five or that because we'd already clinched it. The record could have been better. We were a formidable team at home. Uh, we, and the fans made it that way. You know, the better we got, the more they showed up, the louder they got, the tougher on our opponent. Uh, but, but, you know, as Bob Gebhard mentioned to me at the end, geez, Andy, we won this thing. We were just trying to get organized. But, but, what we principally wanted to do was improve the defense and the bullpen, and it took us a lot further than we thought. It actually reminds me of last year's Twins team, where Thad Levine and Derek Falvey take over and sort of are trying to just get it organized right. and they make the playoffs. <laughs> exactly. you know, it's, yeah. uh, History repeats itself. Sort of a yeah. similar situation. Was there a point during that 87 season where you really thought this team has what it takes to win it all? Uh, we had such a tough time getting past Detroit and we knew we had to go through Detroit that I don't know that I honestly ever felt we were going to win the World Series. I was, uh, you know, I was happy with the progress. Uh, you know, Reardon and Berenguer, Keith Atherton, they did a nice job getting us at the end. You know, guys like Bly Levin were extraordinarily important to us. And, you know, you, you are blessed if you go through this game and have a player like Kirby Puckett on your on your roster that has the influence on the field and in the clubhouse that he had uh, with our guys. It was a great, a fun experience. I think what I didn't really appreciate was how unique the character was of that group, how much fun they were. I was about their age, you know, so it, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, you thought that was kind of the norm, and then as you would progress through your career, it's not really, you know, they were a unique group. What was it like getting back from Detroit after the ALCS that night? Well, that, you know, brings tears to your eyes because that is, you know, that you know, we were crying. It was, I do remember they were telling us that when we, after we upset Detroit, that there would be people to meet us at the airport. Uh, then they told us, well, that, you know, it's a big crowd for the airport. We're going to do it at the Dome. We might have 12,000 there. 
and then they're saying, gee, we could have 20. And by the time you got there, it was full. You know, and they, we didn't see anything. They, we came in through the basement, and they sort of opened the gates, and then they threw you out there, and it was packed. It was, that probably would be about as high a point in your career as you could have, just walking out onto that field. After that championship in 87, some ups and downs, you guys finished last in 1990. You signed Jack Morris as a free agent February of 1991. Could you have imagined the type of impact that he would have on the Twins when you made that signing? No, not to, not to that we were going to be go from last to world champions. Uh, obviously, we were trying to sign him. I was trying to sign him for the longest time. Again, Dick Moss was the agent. Uh, <laughs> Full circle and, here. Yeah, and uh, I'm working it. I mean, I am working it hard. I can remember calling him and saying, hey, look, I can get him in the media guide. I mean, I'm running out of time. You know, it's, but I couldn't get him to go. Uh, and then we did something that no other team ever did. We, we created the first player option. In 1991, I mean, it was February, which is now that's not as unusual. But back in '91, nobody signed in February. Uh, but finally, I just said, "Look, I'll commit three years at three million, nine million. But if you don't like the deal after a year, you have a great year. You can go, you can bolt." And I was roundly criticized for that because it was viewed as a completely player, you know, oriented deal. What is he? He got the nine. He can only do better. It was February. I was becoming convinced I wasn't going to sign him unless I did it. I knew I, we needed him. And then the other issue was I started to think about, well, look, what if he, what if, what if he wins 20 games, which he would, and he leaves after one year? Well, then I got him for one year $3 million. I'll do that. So that's what ended up happening. And uh, he would end up signing with Toronto and winning another world championship the next year, which, uh, you know, if, if ever there was a pitcher that – you wanted to go out and win a big game in my career, I'm, I'm going to take Jack Morris. You uh, weren't just trying to create something new to try to match your grandfather's uh, <laughs> legacy? <laughs> I actually did the first player option, and I did the first mutual option with Rick Aguilera. So we, you know, again, it's looking at everything and trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to get what we want accomplished accomplished. You, uh, you've said that you took more pride in the 91 World Series championship than the one in 87. Why is that? Well, I felt like I inherited the 87 team. Uh, you know, we made some adjustments and hired a new manager, but we, you know, but that team was largely in place by virtue of the people that were there before me. Uh, the 91 team, there's not one pitcher on that 91 roster that was on the 87 roster. So we had to completely overhaul the pitching in that four-year period. Uh, and, you know, we felt we'd made progress as an organization in introducing young talent. We would have a rookie of the year and Chuck Knobloch that year. Uh, it just felt like that was something that was more of a result of a plan and effort than just sort of, you know, walking into a situation and figuring out, geez, we're a lot better than I thought we were going to be. I read a quote you once said. You said, if you're going to give me all the credit for winning in Minnesota, you have to give me the blame, too. I finished last. I traded Tom Bernanski for Tommy Herr. Especially in your early years, were you the kind of executive who agonized over the mistakes more than you took satisfaction in the success? Well, that I wish I hadn't found that quote. Because <laughs> that, that, that was a life lesson. That was a mistake I made. I have, I have made a lot of mistakes. I have very few regrets. Uh, but I would call that trade a regret, and I would say it for this reason. I did it, I did it without vetting it to the degree I should have. Now, remember, Tommy here was in our ballpark in the postseason, the World Series, so we could see him play in our park. You know, and I looked at the regular data, but I, there were other checks that needed to be boxes that needed to be checked. There were other sources that needed to be worked. Uh, I did it impulsively. Uh, I shouldn't say impulsively, but close to it. I did it way too, you know, it, it, it would, I would never act that way again. I mean, I moved too quickly, uh, and I've learned that lesson, and it's a mistake I've never repeated since. I get criticized in Baltimore for being deliberate. Uh, boy, you make a trade like that, <laughs> you become deliberate. Right. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean you don't do what you have to do, but you're going to make sure that, that uh, you know, you've checked the boxes that need to be checked and you do your due diligence. You said there won't be three generations in the Hall of Fame. That, of course, remains to be seen, but you were inducted into the Twins Hall of Fame last summer. What did that mean to you? Again, that was great. I mean, that uh, I've had 
great experiences in every organization I've been with, but, but that one is, you know, you go through two world championships. We hired some people, uh, you know, that, uh, Terry Ryan, which I mentioned earlier, Bill Smith, Bob Gebhard, they would all become GMs on their own right. You know, they would, uh, you just, you know, you, you all sort of grew up together in the same event. You know, it's like, you know, it's like they were, you know, they would become friends as well. So that, it w that was a, you know, my, I would get married there. I would have two boys there. That was an important chapter in my life that, that, that it's going to be, that is unique, that can't be repeated. That chapter ends in September of 1994. You leave the Twins for Chicago to become the president and CEO of the Cubs. You had two years left on your deal with the Twins at the time. What was it about that challenge in Chicago that enticed you to make the move? Well, that, you know, uh, it's, first of all, who, what GM gets promoted? You know, if you become a GM, that's the end of the line. That's good. I've been, I had done it for close to 10 years. Uh, this was a unique opportunity. It was the opportunity, it, the Cubs obviously owned by a corporation. They needed an individual to represent ownership. Nobody owned the team, per se. It was owned by shareholders. So that was a unique opportunity. I could learn, and I did. You could learn a lot about the other side, the business side of the operation, as well as the baseball side. Predominantly day games. I have two little boys. That means I get to see little league games. So it was, it was clearly a unique opportunity, and, uh, but it was clear to me if Carl Pollard didn't want me to go, then I I shouldn't go. I mean, I had a two-year deal, which was guaranteed. And, he, you know, he did it for my benefit, you know, it, it certainly, which I was grateful for. I, I did promise him that there wouldn't be a drop-off with Terry Ryan taking over for me, which, I, which history would prove to be true. Uh, but he did it, you know, he did it because he thought it was in my best interest, which I was always grateful for. But it was a unique challenge. And as my dad used to say, you know, every 10 years you ought to do something different with your life. And... So you only go through once. You had the opportunity to take them to the World Series, which I haven't been to in 1914. So let's go. Let's try. You know, and we came up short, but 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 you had to try. I mean, you you can't just sit back in your comfort zone. You got to try something different. Kind of ironic that after knowing early in your career that you didn't want to do the business side, but you wanted to do the baseball side. That the business side was part of what attracted you to that next challenge. Yeah, both sides. You know, I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't divorced at all from the baseball side. I had the opportunity, as I do here in, in Philadelphia, to live in both worlds, which is you know kind of the best of both worlds. So it was, you know, it it, it was. I I've never regretted making that move. Uh, I regretted not getting the last five outs in two thousand three to get us the World Series. We'll but, get there. <laughs> yeah, right. but uh, but that you know no that was the absolute categorically the right thing to do, and we, we did okay. When you were hired by the Cubs, uh, you said that the stakes and consequences of front office moves were greater than they had been 10 or 15 years earlier. This is 1994. Mm -hmm. Has that become even more pronounced in the past 24 years? No question. You know, progressive, it's progressively more and more. You know, the, the dollars are greater. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. The 98 team wins the National League wild card get swept by the Braves. That season, of course, was best known for the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa home run race. What was it like for you to watch Sammy every day that year? Well, two things. First of all, just to remind it, you know, the game is such a goofy thing. In 97, we started the season 0-14. And if you had told us that next year we were going to get in the postseason, that would just, that you just can't, you know, that was mind-boggling. It's still mind-boggling to me, look back on it. Sammy was was a unique guy. I think if you go back and look at June of 98, I think he had 20 home runs in June. There was a time where every time he went to the plate, you were expecting a home run. And the other thing I remember in my role as the CEO, nobody left the game if there was another Sosa at bat. So you could be up 7-2, you could be down 7-2, but if Sosa was going to hit in the eighth, they hung around to see that last at bat. And then when he got to the batters, when he got to the uh, you know the batters box or before that on deck, you could hear the chatter. You know, in Wrigley we don't have that much music put in, so you could just hear the fans. You know, just everything got elevated. He he, 
yeah, I'm sorry. I know the Cubs have made an effort to sort of repair the bridges I'm, I'm, and, and make him you know, a more meaningful part of their history than he is now. Uh, I'm just disappointed for everybody that that didn't work out because he, you know, what he meant to that team and that city that year was, was truly remarkable. Two other guys burst on the scene and became big stars very quickly in Chicago. What was it like watching Mark Pryor and Kerry Wood in the early stage of their careers? Uh, we had, you know, my goal had always been go to the ballpark, and this is what made the Braves teams great. Go to the ballpark every day, and you're going to have a chance to win because your starting pitcher's that good. And that's what the Braves were about. And uh, at Wrigley Field, the wind can blow in, the wind can blow out, the wind can go from right. It can be 30 degrees, it can be 100 degrees. It, you know, so, so it wasn't like the Metrodome where you could build your position players around a surface and constant environment. So I just, I believe that, look, you get good starting pitching trumps everything. So let's go get great starting pitching. And we had Wood and Pryor and Zambrano. Uh, we would sign Maddox. We had Matt Clement for a while who did a good job for us. We were, but, but on any day that Pryor and Wood pitched, you, you know, you could see 16 strikeouts and three walks. It, it really was remarkable. And then I was fortunate enough to see what might have been the most dominantly pitched game in the history of baseball when Woody went out like in his fourth start and dominated a good Houston Astro team uh, with 20 punch outs. It was, it was remarkable. About six years into your tenure with the Cubs, you also took on GM duties. What prompted that? Uh, we needed to make a change. Uh, uh, our GM had, had resigned. Uh, uh, knowing things were were bad, and I promised Carl Polad when I went to Chicago I wouldn't go as the GM because if if I was going to be a GM, then I would stay in Minnesota. I had to go and take the job that, as described by the Tribune Company. So I thought it needed to be on a temporary basis, uh, and I also, as as fate would have it, would get involved in the collective bargaining agreement for the 2002. So that would further you know you're now you're doing three jobs uh, but I needed I had identified somebody in our organization Jim Henry who I felt that was capable but he did not have any major league background he was all player development and scouting uh, and I needed I thought he needed some time so my idea was to just take it on temporarily and then hand the uh, the reins over to him uh, which is ultimately what happened. You, you do turn the GM duties over to Hendry. A year later, the Cubs are back in the postseason, 2003, win the NL Central. You beat the Braves in the first round this time, uh, the first postseason series win for the team since 1908. Did you think that team had the chance to be the one that, that broke that championship Absolutely, drop? absolutely, absolutely. You know, we were up 3-1 with the Marlins with Wood and Pryor going, so Pryor and Wood rather in that order. Yeah, I, I thought... Hell, you know, yeah, I absolutely thought we had a chance to uh, to win it. I thought we were, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't know what, you know, we would have had to play the Yankees in the World Series. We see where that would have gone. But but I was, I would have, you know, I was surprised when we didn't. I thought we were in a good position. You know, up 3-1 with Wood and Pryor, that's pretty much where you want to be. Fifteen years later, what are your memories of the Bartman incident and, and the fallout from that? Well, he didn't do anything that anybody else wouldn't have done, you know. Uh, I do think Moises would have caught the ball, but I, but I don't think that Bartman did anything that 99.9% that of our fans going through the stern turnstile. So I think that what I think about that is I think about how a guy going to an exciting game once in a lifetime, scoring great seats, and how he walked in that ballpark, and then when he left it, his life had totally taken a different turn. Uh, you know, which is kind of, you know, which is sad, you know, and uh, it's just one of those things. I mean, those are things that you learn going through life that, you know, and, you know, things can happen, you know, don't take anything for granted, you know, that, you know, your life can dramatically shift, you know, at any time. And unfortunately for him, he's an example of that. The Cubs have never even drawn two and a half million fans in a season before you got there. Your final three years there, they drew more than three million each year. Two of those were losing seasons. So it wasn't a matter of, oh, they're good and everybody's going to see them now. What was it that made Wrigley such a destination? Ah, that's a good question. For, uh, 
because my boss, Jim Dowdle, which another, like Al Rosen, everybody ought to have a boss like Jim Dowdle, former Marine with the Tribune, the one responsible for the Cubs being purchased by Tribune, really. He, one of his first things that did is he sent me to Disney, uh, like a Disney Academy, and I'm thinking, what a joke this is, you know, what, God, what a bunch of corporate nonsense this is. But the one thing I learned from the Disney Academy thing was you have to understand the base expectation of your customer, and you have to deliver it. And in the case of Wrigley Field, it was the baseball cathedral. Uh, so we would try to go about improving the experience at Wrigley Field where they got what they came for, which was Wrigley Field. Uh, and that, you know, would, you know, I think it became a tourist destination because it was, you know, at that period of time, for whatever reason, people were recognizing it as one of the, you know, last bastions of sort of, non-advertising pure baseball and I think that had a you know I think we got to the point where we weren't necessarily dependent upon team performance people knew that they had to get their uh, you know they had to buy their tickets early because uh, they may not get them if they didn't buy them early you could buy a season ticket and you know I think probably interleague play I'm not sure when that started but I think that might have helped teams like the Yankees and Red Sox going through uh, people could buy a season ticket, know that they could sell those three games and recoup a large percentage of their investment. So there was a lot happening, but I think, I think in our case, we were pretty well attuned into what, what we were all about. You resigned from the Cubs at the end of the 2006 season, saying it was the first thing in baseball you'd ever done without having a high level of success. Why was it the right time for you to leave Chicago? Well, I think there was. Uh, I think I got out before they pushed me out. I mean, I really think that they felt like 12 years was enough. You know, you came close, but you didn't get it. They wanted to make some changes. I understand that. I had spent a lot of time that summer, uh, again, 2006, doing my second collective bargaining agreement, so I wasn't there that much. They probably felt like they could do just as well without me, uh, which I felt like it's, you know, and I, I don't really – didn't necessarily disagree so I think we came to by really June of that year we came to a mutual agreement that this would be my last year uh, so obviously I tried to you know get as lucrative a package on my way out as I could and wish luck to the next guy kind of goes back to your father's do something yeah, different something every 10 different, years right? right yeah you can't be afraid and also by that time I'd done that for really since the day I graduated from college straight on so it's time off and a summer off was something that had some appeal to me I've heard that from a lot of players who have retired in the past few years. Yeah. I mean, Derek Jeter, Carlos Beltran saying, yeah. I haven't had a summer off since I'm you know, exactly. 14 years old or yeah. whatever it may be. Nine months after you leave the Cubs, you're named president of baseball operations for the Orioles, taking over your third team. What was it about Baltimore that attracted you? Well, I, you know, I was in Baltimore from, let's say, when I was five years old to like 13. You know, that was the team I grew up rooting for. Uh, Peter Angelos was on the uh, negotiating committee with me. We were the only two owner representatives in 2002, uh, so I got to know him well. You know, Peter's kind of an old school honor guy. If he tells you something, you know, then he's going to do it, and he did. He uh, so I trusted him, and I knew it was going to be a long haul because. You know, Boston and New York were at their zenith at that time, uh, as you well know. Uh, Tampa would go from losing 90-some games to winning 90-some games. It was, a, it was a slog, and I did, I think I was able to convince Peter that we needed to do more of a traditional rebuild than trying to Band-Aid this thing. And I couldn't get him quite as aggressively along those lines as, as I would have liked, but we did enough to, to you know, try to introduce a younger talent and understand that this is the process we added to go through to get better again. Now, you had won two World Series in Minnesota. You'd been to the playoffs a couple times with the Cubs. The Orioles lost at least 93 games in each of your four full years there. How difficult were those four years for you, knowing you were building towards something, but at the same time going through 93-plus losses each year? It sucked. I mean, it's no, there's nothing good about it. I mean, it's, but the one thing, there were, the only solace you can take in it is it was clearly the right thing to do. There was no other option. So you did what had to be done. And, you know, different 
general managers take over teams at different places where they are, and they have to surmise where they are. Uh, one of the best quotes that I've ever heard came from Buck Showalter. you got to know who you are and what you're trying to do. Uh, that one we had figured out. We knew what had to happen. Uh, it's not fun, uh, but somebody has to do it, So, and that was me. You left the Orioles. The year, the year after you leave, they win 93 games. They have that turnaround that you had been building towards. Uh, was there any satisfaction in knowing that you had been responsible for bringing in guys like Adam Jones, Manny Machado, Chris Davis, J.J. Hardy, not to mention you hired Buck? Yeah. No, absolutely, uh, and they were very gracious about it, uh, recognizing it. I think Dan and his group did a very good job augmenting the pitching. I mean, he found some starting pitching that, that is not an easy thing to do. Uh, I think the position players were were a product of our our process, but but you know he went out and had to find some starting pitching to get him through. But yeah, it was it. Uh, you know, you, you'd like to think your time wasn't a waste. You'd like to think their investment in you wasn't a waste either, that, that, that you did what your job was supposed to be. But by the end of that four-and-a-half-year period, I was cooked, and I didn't, you know, no mas. I didn't want I had had enough. I was getting resentful the time I was spent at the ballpark. There were so many things that I wanted to do uh, that I hadn't been able to do that I, I had just had enough. You had said the game wasn't fun for you anymore. Did you think when you left Baltimore the end of 2011 that that was going to be your final job with the team? I didn't know, but I did know this, that, you know, if you leave, you know, this game is going to march on very nicely without you, thank you very much. So you have to be prepared that that's the end. And if something comes up that intrigues you, that's one thing. But, but you can't walk away thinking, oh, they're going to line up and try to hire me. That, that would be a mistake, uh, which I didn't make. Uh, so, no, I was prepared for it to be the end if that's the way fate would take it. June of 2015, fate lands you in Philadelphia as a special assistant to Pat Gillick with the plan of succeeding him as the team president at the end of the season. You said at the time you were surprised that the Phillies hired you for the position. No question. I still am. Uh, you know, you, it, I would have thought that, you know, maybe after a year and a half, some, you know, come. But if you sit out of this game for three and a half years, you know, that is, you know, uh, out of sight, out of mind. You know, people were, so I was surprised that they reached back that far and found somebody that, to fill that position. So, and it, and it was, of all the places I've encountered, uh, there, you know, in Minnesota, the median age of a scout was 78. We didn't have a scout living in Texas. We had two living in South Dakota. In Chicago, you know, we were we were signing swimmers and things with long muscle twitch and stuff. I mean, it you know everything was kind of a significant rebuild. But in Philly, there in in Baltimore, we were confronted with the American League East. In Philly. A lot of this stuff is in place. They're just going through the cycle, the down cycle. But they're, but as an organization, they were pretty far advanced, in my view. It was, it was a different coming in there was very different from coming in any other place I'd come in. What were the three and a half years in between Baltimore and Philadelphia like? What did you do for three and a half years? Well, it's one of the smarter things I've ever done in my life. We traveled, and for one thing, we traveled everywhere. I mean, China, Thailand, Vietnam. Ecuador, Peru, Brazil, Turkey, Greece, Italy. I mean, we did, you know, we didn't go to the Caribbean. We didn't let too much, all those things that I'd wanted to do. Plus, we became, my wife and I became America's guest. I mean, people wouldn't invite us to Nantucket, you know, for a week in the summer. Or, it's a pretty good gig, go out to Arizona in the winter. <laughs> we, I could travel and see my brothers or see my kids. I mean, it was, it was pretty good. July was probably a lot less stressful for you too. Yeah, I, no trade I, deadline to worry yeah. about. <laughs> there was it was it was good. It was you know there were things that I wanted to do. For for example, I wanted to read more. I did that. I wanted to get myself in better shape. I did that. I wanted to eat healthier. I did that. And I wanted to become more computer versant. I didn't get that one done. <laughs> that was harder than I thought. You know, but there were a lot of self improvement things that were untapped. Some of which I accomplished. Some I didn't. Did you miss baseball during that time? Not really. I mean, my sons were involved, so I could live vicariously through there and their teams. They, Walt Jockey hired both of them at different times to be interns with the Reds. So I'd go out to Cincinnati and to see them. 
but that was really other than occasionally watching it on TV. I didn't, you know, I had, remember like from 76 on that that had been every day, you know, for for decades. So this was this was a good time away. Was there a point before the Phillies came to you where you had decided I want to get back into the game or if the Phillies hadn't come to you, were you perfectly at peace of the idea of not working in baseball anymore? Yeah, I I think that I would have just recognized that was it, that that, you know, that the career was done, uh, which is okay. You know, I didn't, you know, I, I recognize that. I, as I said earlier, anytime you walk away from the game, you don't be so uh, uh, idiotic as to think that they're going to be lining up to bring you back. The game is, is going to go on every day. They're going to play every day whether you're there or not. So uh, I always recognize that was a possibility. I think by the end of three and a half years, I was – hoping something would come up, but it wasn't anything that I actively campaigned for. Matt Klintak had worked for you in Baltimore. He was your director of baseball operations for four years before he went to the Angels. What impressed you most about Matt during your time together in Baltimore? You know, the things we've talked about where you look at the whole picture. I mean, you're not trying to get, you're not seeking the magic formula, you know, through one analytic, you know, formula that's going to tell you who's going to make it through your system and who isn't. Matt very much understands trying to look at the entire picture, you know, things we talked about, health, character, you know, obviously analytics are part of that, conventional scouting information, the importance of scouting every aspect of the game internationally uh, and working every aspect of player acquisition, whether it's through a waiver claim or a trade or a free agent acquisition. You just have to be good at all of it today. And he... You know, I, I, he definitely has that point of view, and he definitely demonstrated to me as an assistant that he understood and was capable of doing that. You've been running baseball teams far longer than New Age Analytics have been in the picture. When did you first start buying in and really being a believer in some of the new well, stats? Well, you know, we, we've done different stats. When I was with the Twins, for example, we hired, or I hired a woman named Marianne McCulley that would look at essentially relievers and at that point in the 80s she was to separate inherited runners who scored who didn't sort of get a better picture of what because a relievers line is dependent upon what happens before them and after them so we I've always had an interest in trying to get a little more information and I've always had an interest in trying to come up with my own information uh, in our own scouting system. Uh, so at this point in my career, I'm more of a learner of what they're doing and what they hope it tells you. And then I think I understand that it is going to be, we're going to learn through experience what, which analytics work, which ones are predictive of players' performance and which ones aren't. And we're just collecting all that stat cast data now. I mean, does we talk about exit velocity, launch angle. Uh, there is a lot of information that's accessible to us. Some of it proprietary. Some of it is out there on the web. There are a lot of amazingly well-written, well-thoughtful articles out there by people. I don't know where they come from, but there, there's some good stuff out there. So there's no shortage of information, but I do think you have to synthesize it down to what you find to be predictive and what you don't find is helpful. It's only been 10 years since the Phillies last won the World Series, but did the Eagles Super Bowl win and I guess Villanova winning the NCAA? It's been a pretty good year for Philadelphia. And the 76ers and, and the, the Flyers have yeah, both gotten the Hall of Fame. Very, yeah. very strong uh, sports year for, for the Philadelphia area. Does that put more pressure on you guys? Uh, I think it's the opposite, actually. Uh, the, the years I've found the most stressful was when everybody stinks. And that, <laughs> that's when people get ugly, you know. So there, there's a lot to be happy about as a Philly fan. And uh, they, you know, they, I think fans in general are a little more, just a little less on edge. But, but I've been in Chicago when we all were bad, and that you do not want to be there. You, uh, you mentioned before both of your sons work in baseball, fourth generation of McPhails to do so. Was that inevitable, or did you try to drive them in another direction? I tried to be Switzerland, just sort of stay out of it. 
their mother was very keen that they both become doctors, so she she lost that. <laughs> My oldest child was definitely, I mean, he was definitely had the bug from a, you know, age of five or so. So that doesn't surprise me as much. Uh, the younger one is a little more well-rounded, you know, sort of interest-wise. Uh, but I think he's found a, a great niche where he is with the Dodgers. So uh, I'm happy they're both in it. But, you know, obviously what's most important is that they're happy doing what they're doing. Last one for you. You've won two World Series with the, with the Twins. Uh, so you got your ring early on in your career. Does winning the World Series still drive you on, on a daily basis? Is that still what gets you excited to come to work of the idea of putting together a team that can win it all? I think in this role, as a GM that would, but that's not the role I have now. I think in this role, my driving force is to make this the best organization I can make. And whether that's ballpark improvements, uh, whether it's building, we, we our ownership has made a tremendous investment in the infrastructure of this franchise in terms of building out the analytics, not just the baseball, but the business side as well. Uh, trying to hire people that not only can collect the information, but, you know, that, that's the science part. But then there's an art in delivering it to the players. So, so Matt has hired people like Sam Fold or former players to help players go through all the data and, and help them understand what's working for them and what isn't working for them from somebody that's been there and done that. So that I, I am driven every day to try to make sure that we become just as good a, a franchise as we possibly can in every respect. Andy McPhail, president of Philadelphia Phillies, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you. Many thanks to Andy McPhail for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. For our next episode, I'll sit down with Mets Senior Vice President of Baseball Operations and Assistant General Manager John Ricca. We'll discuss his start as an intern with the Yankees, what he learned working in the commissioner's office, why he decided to move back to the club side with the Mets, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand.